I'm ready. Let's do this. Uh, if you're uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse ten. That's where we'll start off this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that, that Bible's yours. Take it with you, our gift to you. I will tell you, as of this morning, I am a glass case of emotion, like many of you, uh, because I know that there are several who have stepped into the elementary room, that that's uncharted waters for them. We have our oldest daughter going to kindergarten tomorrow, uncharted waters for us. Um, on the ride here, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I decided to listen to an Irish ballad by Oscar Isaac and Marcus Mumford entitled Fare Thee Well. Like what, that was just dumb, right? Um, and I wept in my car, wiped my tears, got out and came into this building. So we'll see what God does. I trust him to do great things because he loves to flex and show himself strong uh, in the, the weakness of his instruments of the gospel. And so let me pray, uh, mostly for me, but for all of us, and, and we'll dive into the scriptures together. God, please flex. Please show yourself to be mighty in these moments that we have your word open together, gathered as your people. Jesus, you love to exercise your office as a prophet, priest, and king, and there is an opportunity to exercise the office of prophet right now in this moment. I pray that you would. God, we're desperate for you. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you... Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. Thank you for divine revelation. Thank you that we can open the scriptures together, that we're not left to human speculation, but we can know. We can know something of who you are. We can know something of what you've accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted, Spirit of God, that you would move mightily, that you would stir in our midst. Without you, we are hopeless this is nothing more than a human endeavor apart from you. So I pray that you would stir. I pray that you would move. I pray that you would give this uh, puddle of emotions standing before these people your indwelling power to preach your word so that we might walk away here encouraged, ready to forge ahead for the sake of the gospel, that you might be glorified and that we might be satisfied ultimately in you. It's in the name of the risen Savior and King Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you're relatively new to our church, you may have figured this out by now. You heard over the last few weeks, other guys preaching, talking about how we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes and not having to face that challenge, but the challenge of grabbing a passage from somewhere and determining what to preach. Well, we're back in Ecclesiastes this morning. This morning marks the beginning of part two of a sermon series that began back in the early days of summer. Crazy to think that summer has come and gone now. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most criticized, complex, and confusing books in all the Bible. It's a book that, that many people are drawn to grateful for the honesty that it brings in, in capturing the experience of what it is to be human, a book that other people are happy to keep at arm's length with its pessimistic outlook, its interpretive challenges. We'll see some of those even this morning. As I mentioned last time I preached, <laughs> neutrality regarding the book of Ecclesiastes is like a leprechaun riding a unicorn. You'll be hard pressed to find it. You either love it or you hate this book, which begs the question, why study it? 
Why get into this book of the Bible? It's a question that I've sought to answer each and every week of this series, knowing that, that some of us might need a little nudge to, to jump into the pool, so to speak. And so I've given these answers from week one of this series. Number one, it's honest, captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world, arguably better than any other book of the Bible. It's incredibly relatable to those of us who know what it is to have tasted our tears. Number two, it's core shaping has the power to change the, the very trajectory of our lives, giving us a window into the futility of a life lived apart from God so that we might not make the same mistake for ourselves. Three, it's apologetic, meaning that it isn't afraid to ask the most challenging questions of human existence, questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages, helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider a world apart from God. Four, it's doxological, meaning that it helps us to worship the one God who reigns above the sun, the one who brings meaning where everything else would otherwise be meaningless. And then lastly, it's practical, teaching us how to view and approach things that are part of everyday life, things like work, relationships, money, and even ultimately death, which we all someday will face, proving it to be a book that is both timeless and timely for us. As I've said before in this series, the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to trust the words of the Apostle Paul who said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In that regard, Ecclesiastes is a gift of God's grace, breathed out by God and profitable to you and I who profess to be the people of God. If you weren't around for the first part of this series, or uh, maybe you were and could use a refresher since we've taken a few weeks off. Let me, let me attempt to do a little bit of framing. This won't be new to many of you, but I think it can be helpful nonetheless so that we're all on the same page as we dive into part two here. The author of Ecclesiastes, which most believe to be either Solomon or someone later in Israel's history identifying with Solomon in order to get a point across that uh, even a king, if he, if he can't find meaning or purpose in this world, we have to ask the question, can we? The author of Ecclesiastes begins with both a statement and a question. Chapter one, verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity, you see it more than 30 times throughout the book, which means we should pay attention to what it means. It literally means vapor or mist. It's like a breath on a cold day disappearing as it leaves a person's lips or smoke rising from a fire disappearing into the sky. It can mean a number of things. It can mean life is elusive, difficult to grasp the mystery of it all. It's incomprehensible. Secondly, it can mean life is momentary. It's here today and gone tomorrow. James 4.14, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Thirdly, it can mean life is futile never ultimately and truly satisfying, chasing after the wind. We're always grasping after some sort of meaning and happiness that's elusive to us. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the author leads out with arguably, I don't know if it's arguable, I think it is the most pessimistic introduction in all of the Bible, is it not? Which he proceeds to follow with a question. A question that he grapples with for the better part of the book. Chapter one, verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Another way to ask it, it's an economic question. What does it profit a person? What's the return on investment? The under the sun answer according to the author, nothing. 
That, that phrase under the sun, just as complex in its various meanings as the word vanity. It's a phrase that has everything to do with unlocking the meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is why we've come back to it over and over and over again throughout this series. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world on the one hand, surrounded by everything that makes this world sad, coming out of the brokenness of Genesis chapter three. It can mean a, a view of the world absent of God, that there's nothing above the sun, a this is all there is outlook. Life is nothing more than a, a non-theistic accident rather than a, a story, a meaningful story that God is authoring. Thirdly, it can mean a belief in God, but one falls, that falls short of the fullness of uh, who the scriptures tell us that God is. So that fearing God in Ecclesiastes is not necessarily the same as the fear of the Lord in Proverbs. In Proverbs, we see the name Yahweh used, which is God in covenant relationship with his people. The author of Ecclesiastes never goes that far. He uses the name Elohim, which is more of a general creator God language. There's no fatherhood and sonship language in the book of Ecclesiastes so that we have no understanding of how God relates to us as his children by way of the author's writing. There, there's no declared coming Messiah who will rescue his people from life under the sun. We have to leave the book to see that and we'll, we'll get there soon enough as we dive into this morning's passage. Under the sun, fourthly, it can mean a right confessional belief in God intermingled with a life of hypocrisy, living for the now, living for the self, while professing a belief in eternity and the supremacy of Christ. And lastly, it can mean a limited perspective on life compared to God's all-knowing view of the world. This frustration with wanting to see how everything comes together, how everything fits, yet knowing that all-knowingness is not an attribute that God has chosen to share with us as his image bearers. All these ways of, of contemplating life under the sun show up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain, he asked, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Having considered up to this point in the book, chapter six, the, having considered the endless cycles of nature, the world running in circles without any true sense of progress or direction, having ventured on a personal quest for meaning and happiness by way of wisdom and pleasure and achievement. The author not only comes up empty-handed, but we're told giving his heart up to despair, hating life itself, forced to admit that the seasons that we go through in life are not ultimately in our hands, frustrated by his limited knowledge of God's activity in the world, filled with unmet expectations as he looks out on a world filled with wickedness, a world in which even the safe places aren't truly safe. Even his perception of God, going back to chapter five, is not altogether optimistic. Fearful caution in God's presence, the best we can hope for, according to the author. A God who, if we're fortunate, will give us wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them so that we can know the luxury of distraction from the futility of life. From an under the sun perspective, all is vanity. This morning, we see a little bit of a shift in the author's thinking as his focus becomes, I would say, less pragmatic and more philosophical. We know that because the word toil, which has been used 20 times up to this point in the book, only gets used four times from this point on. Same thing with the word gain. We've seen it six times used up to this point. We won't see it again from this point on. Toil and gain, very pragmatic, the return on investment kind of language. The focus of the book is, is moving from, from that kind of vantage point in thinking 
into the direction of the question of how, how we can understand the world in which we live. Can we make sense of it? It's very much more philosophical. Can we grasp it all? With that being said, diving into chapter six, verse 10, the author says this, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the, the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He says, whatever is come to be has already been named. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. Chapter one, verse nine. That God has always been the one to rule and reign over the seasons of human existence. We've always been the ones having to adjust. And not only is God the one with all the power, he's the one with all the knowledge. He's the only one with an all access pass. We're desperately nearsighted as it pertains to our ability to see the full tapestry that God is weaving. He asks, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Which ironically, he follows up that question, those kinds of questions with a list of Proverbs declaring things that are good and things that are better than other things. Chapter seven, verse one, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, if you've been around our church for any time at all, you know, we like to work through books of the Bible verse by verse, typically. You might be asking yourself, hold up, you just blazed a trail through the first 12 verses of chapter seven of Ecclesiastes. Are we not gonna go back and parse out each of those verses? And my answer is no, we're not. And the reason is this. I'm not convinced that these verses are meant to be treated that way. Based on what we've seen up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, let me make sense of that. In the immediate surrounding context of chapter seven, verses one through 12, you have the author presenting the question on the front end, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? I mean, you have the author on the back end of those 12 verses presenting the question, who can make straight what God has made crooked? So that within those two bookended questions declaring that we can't make sense of anything on the one hand or change anything on the other, you have verses one through 12. The, the first 12 chapters, uh, uh, 12 verses, I should say, of chapter seven are surrounded by who knows and who can make straight. So that 
I think we'd be wise not to assume that everything packed into these verses is wisdom infused, though it is written in Proverbs-like form rather than prose. I think we'd be wise to put these verses up against other passages of scripture outside of the book of Ecclesiastes and see if they hold up to scrutiny. Because the author throughout the course of his writing has been incredibly uncertain and incredibly unsettled. In fact, the two major themes that he presents in these 12 verses that start off chapter seven are death on the one hand and wisdom and folly on the other. The very two themes representing the two biggest seeming contradictions in all the book. The the two themes that scholars have the hardest time with as they try to make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes. So that the author says on the one hand that death is better than life, chapter four, verse two, but he also says that life is better than death. We'll see that next week, chapter nine, verses four through six. He also says that wisdom preserves life, chapter seven, verse 12, this morning's passage. But he also says back in chapter two, verse 16, that wisdom fails to preserve life. Not to mention that following closely behind these 12 verses that start off chapter seven is verse 16, which says this, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? I think we can... We, we can take things like yes and amen to, to looking at death and staring it in the face, knowing that it soberly helps us to know how to live because the apostle Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But what the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't so, go so far as to say is that Jesus Christ has taken the stinger out of death. I think we can say, yes, there's something beautiful about patience. It's actually part of the fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. But to, to sit downstream like a fish with our mouths open and just receive everything as wisdom infused from these proverb-like verses that make up the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that would be a little dangerous. Verse 13 is language similar to what we saw in chapter one of the book where the author said, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, he said prior to this morning's passage, not only is the wisdom of a man incapable of fixing the brokenness of this world, but the wisdom of man is also incapable of making sense of it all, of making everything add up. It's a chasing after something that can't be grasped. It's a, it's a burdensome task to use the language that he's used before. You have the wisest man who's ever lived outside of Jesus here, the author of Ecclesiastes saying, there's not enough wisdom in the world under the sun to understand it all or fix it all. We can't really know what is good for us the few days of our vain lives. Verse 14, he goes on to say, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And then the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, he says, there's no guarantee that good will come in the future. Future's uncertain. So enjoy the good days when you have them because that's the best you can hope for. He goes on to say in verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. Brimming with optimism, isn't he? In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, on the one hand. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Kind of wonder if he he has some Job-like thinking there. Be not overly wicked, on the other hand. Neither be a fool. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira either. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. 
For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That Job's friends saw a direct correlation between action and consequence to determine that Job's experience of suffering was a divine declaration that Job was a sinner who needed to repent. That's not the perception of the author of Ecclesiastes who declares that righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper. It happens. It's the world we live in. That wisdom is better than folly, but even wisdom doesn't produce what you hope for oftentimes, he says. He says, take hold of wisdom and righteousness, but not too much. Withhold not your hand from wickedness, but not too much. You have no idea what God will do. So why pursue either of these things with great enthusiasm? Hedge your bets. Tread cautiously somewhere between the two extremes. Maybe God won't notice you. Going back to the language of chapter five, watch your step. Walk through life with cautious trepidation. Maybe you can stay off God's radar if you go that route. Maybe you won't end up like Job. Maybe you won't end up like Ananias and Sapphira. He goes on to say in verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Wisdom's a good thing, he says. Yet look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's a reminder that we're all sinners. It says, do not take to heart, verse 21, all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He says, if you listen intently enough, you're bound to hear people bad-mouthing you. But aren't you guilty of the same thing, he says, that even the righteous are unrighteous. In the words of the apostle Paul, none is righteous, no, not one. He says in verse 23, all of this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? It's a reminder of the author's quest for happiness and meaning back in chapter one. This pursuit of hope under the sun using wisdom as a guide, yet coming up short in the end, disappointed, despairing of life itself. Verse 25, you get a little bit of a summary, not just of this morning's passage, but really of the book up to this point. He says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolish that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man, he says, among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." Here you get the author's resigned conclusion, evidenced by the use of the words find or found seven times in these verses alone. What's his conclusion, you might ask? A low view of a corrupt humanity having sought out many schemes. Going back to chapters three and four, even the safe places aren't always safe. Wickedness pervades society. We live in a world in which people use their power to oppress other people. We live in a world in which people envy one another. We live in a world in which foolish people sit on their hands in idleness, a world with people too proud to take advice. He seems to be saying something hopeful in verse 26, right? That he who pleases God escapes the woman whose heart is snares and nets while the sinner is taken by her. Seems to, to be that there's a hope of pleasing God 
if only, if only he hadn't said what he just said in verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. All are sinners. And that's not his only conclusion. He also declares the impossibility of making sense of the world. He can't figure out the scheme of things. Though he's tried everything, adding uh, wisdom and righteousness to folly and wickedness, he's tried it all, wisdom and pleasure, going back to chapter two, and it's failed to find the answers that he's looking for. Now, if you're new to the series, you should have this sort of tension within you right now this question running through your mind going, where is the hope? Are you kidding me? What, like, what do we do with this? Going back to the very first week of the series, I said this, there's a reason that C.S. Lewis is beloved by so many. On the one hand, Lewis was a rationalist, a man of brilliant logic and reason, exposing the errors of the shoddy thinking of his day. On the other hand, Lewis was a, a romantic, and not in the lovey-dovey sense of the word, but rather meaning that his logic didn't kill his imagination. He had an imaginative way of, of seeing the world, an ability to show beauty and meaning, so that the same rationalist who wrote Mere Christianity is the romantic who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Even more amazing is that Mere Christianity isn't just filled with logic and reason, but imaginative illustrations. And the Chronicles of Narnia isn't just filled with beauty and wonder, but razor-sharp logic. So that with Lewis, you get a, an incredibly compelling both and. I would argue, same thing with the book of Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes shows us how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to, to consider life from an under-the-sun perspective, driving us to the romantic rationalism of the Christian worldview, life above the sun, that with God, everything not only comes together in terms of logic and reason, a making sense of the world that we live in, but it comes together in the framework of a beautiful story. Not only is the author of Ecclesiastes directing us upward above the sun, but also outward beyond the pages of the book to find our answers. He, he alludes to this in the last verse of this morning's passage where he points us back to the story of creation as well as the story of the fall. He says, see this alone I found that God made man upright. There's the creation story, but that they have sought out many schemes. There's the story of the fall. It's a story of scripture that tells us that, that we were created for wisdom we were created for pleasure. We were created for work. We were created for relationships. The many themes traced throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the story of scripture that tells us that everything came unraveled in the wake of the sin of our first parents, that, that God has given us what our sin merits us, the crookedness of this world, the unhappy business of life under the sun, life east of Eden, you might say. It's the story of scripture that tells us that we too are sinners that we make our own personal contribution to the corruption and brokenness of this world. And the truth is, there is no hedging our bets with God. Like our first parents in the garden, we cannot hide from the living God in inconspicuousness. It's not an option. The trouble is, that's as far as the author of Ecclesiastes takes us. Because the story of scripture is also a story that, that declares that God wasn't content to leave us there. The Bible doesn't end with Genesis chapter three, verse 14. Rather, there's verse 15, God's declaration of a promise to, to send the seed of Eve who would crush the serpent Satan's head and redeem a people for himself. 
That God had a plan. God had the greatest scheme of all time. Decreed by the Father before time began. Accomplished by the Son on an old rugged cross. Applied by the Spirit to the hearts of God's people. Going back to an old quote from earlier in this series. Douglas Sean O'Donnell says, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the vanity that Pastor Solomon so wrestled with and suffered under, uh, suffered under by subjecting himself to our temporary, meaningless, futile, incomprehensible, incongruous, absurd, smoke curling up into the air, mere breath, vain life. He, Jesus, was born under the sun. He toiled under the sun. He suffered under the sun. He died under the sun, but in his subjection to the curse of death by his own death on the cross, the son of God redeemed us from the curse. By his resurrection, he restored meaning to our toil. And by his return, he will exact every injustice and elucidate every absurdity as he ushers those who fear the Lord into the glorious presence of our all wise, never completely comprehensible God. Amen. Going back to the author's failed pursuit of wisdom in chapters one and two. We talked about this before. This morning's passage is really a summary of all the chapters leading up to it. That in a world in which man's pursuit of wisdom falls short, thanks be to God that wisdom has pursued you and me in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. That unlike the author of Ecclesiastes, God gives us the settled, definitive word on wisdom. You could take it to the bank. And more than an idea or a concept, wisdom is a person and his name is Jesus. And we have access to him. In him. Think about this. Think about this in the contrast to what we read in chapter 6 and 7 of Ecclesiastes. In Christ... We've been made sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, the Father of lights, James chapter one, who gives wisdom generously to all of his children without reproach. That's amazing. That not only do we not have to hide from him, try to live our lives inconspicuously so that we don't end up on his radar, but rather we can run to him. That's good news. If you're not a Christian, let me ask you this question. Do, do you find within yourself a desire which you've chased after in so many other ways that you can't seem to find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment? Have you found yourself up to today in your quest to make sense of the world unsettled like the author of Ecclesiastes? Because I would argue if the answers to those questions are yes, it's because you were meant to have your desires fulfilled in Jesus. You were meant to find your answers in Jesus. That Jesus is God's answer to the scheme of things. He makes everything add up. He's the sum of all things. So that I would invite you, I would implore you to run to him, to give your life to him. Like our first parents, to come out of hiding, to declare your desperate need for him. Notice too, if you leave the book of Ecclesiastes, God doesn't just give us the settled definitive word on wisdom, but also death. Crystal clear, right? There's one grave that's empty. There's one that the dust did not claim. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We talk about it around here all the time. I love that it was up on that Acts 29 video. We're saying what our brothers and sisters around the world that are part of this thing that's bigger than us are saying, that death cannot and will not have the final word for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we, we, we can go to the house of mourning, yes, but we can go knowing that on the other side of the grave is an empty tomb. 
because Jesus set the pattern for us. And, and this grave conquering God, many of you are like, I know that. I know wisdom is personified in Jesus. I know he's the final word on wisdom. I know Jesus is the final word on death. But I would ask us all in this room, no matter how long you've been running at this thing known as the Christian life, to ask yourself the question this morning, this morning, this very day, do I really believe at a functional level, at a heart level, that this grave conquering God is worthy of my trust? Do I really believe that? Regardless of how much of the tapestry he allows me to see. Do I believe that today? Coming back to one more quote from earlier in this series, David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backward, says part of growing up in the world is learning to grow small. God intends us to be like children who trust their parents to know best because they can see what the children can't see. And they know what the children are not yet able to know. And here's the thing. The relationship of trust, he says, is built on the character of the parents. If the parents are good and wise and kind, then the child who cannot see the end from the beginning has nothing to fear. We know we're not ultimately in control of our lives. Man, we try to white knuckle it sometimes, don't we? Use the illustration before, we let the golf ball leave the tee and then we try to contort our body to make that thing move in the air, right? We do it all the time. This morning's passage is not only a reminder, but a beckoning call to loosen our white-knuckled grip and to say, God, you're good, you're wise, you're trustworthy, and you love me. He didn't spare his son. That's how we know. How will he not also, Romans 8, with Christ, graciously give us all things, working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose? We talked about this back in chapter 3. This is a God who promises that in every season of life, whether, whether they be mountaintop experiences or the pummeling waves of circumstance, that he is conforming us to the image of his son. So that not one season of our lives, not one season, even those of pain and hardship, is wasted on the children of God. That God is squeezing every last drop out of every last circumstance of your life to make you look more like Jesus. This is a God who's promised that in every season, he's present with us. That he doesn't just leave us like the God of deism to figure it out on our own or to live in the midst of all of it in loneliness, but rather this is a God who stooped below the sun and knows the fullness of human experience himself in this broken world. And he's with us, ready to dispense, the author of Hebrews tells us, with a heart full of empathy, grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. This is a God, futuristically speaking, who will someday grab hold of every single evil, tragedy, and injustice and bring it into account, ushering us into, as I've said it before, the most glorious happily ever after the universe has ever known. So that the same word applies to us who profess to love and follow Jesus. And this is what I'll leave you with. The Christian life is not a life of hedging our bets. It's a life lived in glad submission to the God whom we love and who has rescued us. It's about aligning our hearts with God's. It's about our hearts breaking for what breaks the heart of God. It's about our hearts stirring for what stirs the heart of God. 
It's not about trying to remain just inconspicuous enough, dabbling in a, a little of wisdom and righteousness, a little of wickedness and folly, trying to stay off of God's radar somehow, but it's a running in his direction. I've said it before, many of the disappointments that you and I have encountered this very week, maybe this very morning before we walked into this place, are rooted in our own forgetfulness. We forget. And thus we pursue our meaning and happiness in things other than Jesus. We try desperately to make God fit into our pursuit of meaning and happiness elsewhere, expecting him to be the stepping stone to help us get there. We buy into the lie that we can make ourselves inconspicuous in the eyes of God. Perhaps some of us need to be re-evangelized this morning yet again, invited to come to him, to run in his direction, declaring yet again that his table is spread with everything we need to satisfy us and bring us true and lasting joy.